You're on Motorsport 360's Living Book with Andrew Clark. Alexander Rossi had a stop-start Formula One career before finding a home in the IndyCar series in the United States. He won the Indy 500 as a rookie in 2016, almost made it two from four this year, and then he ventured down to Bathurst to run the supercars. We sat down to find out how he made it to rural New South Wales. Alexander Rossi, yeah, welcome to Bathurst. Thank it's you. Uh, very different to the places you've been in the past, isn't it? For sure. It's uh, it's it's amazing though. Um, you know, we've heard about this circuit as, as racing drivers, obviously, and uh, this is a well-known race in the racing community. But to be here and uh, to be a part of it is, is something truly special. It's been a race I've always wanted to come to, so to be able to compete in it is, is pretty amazing. Yeah. So the journey here to you is interesting. I mean, uh, an American who yep. didn't aspire to NASCAR or IndyCars to start with, I mean, uh, karting and then off to Europe. Uh, yeah. Did you feel a bit of an oddity in American motorsports? It was interesting because I actually felt more of a culture shock uh, coming back to the States in 2016 uh, because I had spent seven years in Europe, so a lot of my young adult life was spent in, in Europe and England and uh, when I came back it was um, it was a much different kind of dynamic uh, the, the racing environment was very uh, different to what I had become accustomed to so um, yeah it was it was it was different for me for sure but when I got reintroduced to open wheel racing in the states um, I realized what I kind of missed out on and, and felt at home kind of immediately and um, couldn't see myself racing really anywhere else except the uh, NTT Indicar Series back home in America. Now, all the, uh, all the documents on you say it was all about not wanting to do the ovals so much. I mean, sure. Um, was that just from a purist point of view? Or? No, it had nothing to do with that. It was just I grew up in a household that watched Formula One, um, and that was really that was really it. I didn't watch IndyCar racing. Um, I was introduced to kart racing at Laguna Seca, Albeit, um, that was more of my just introduction to motorsports. Once I had a passion for racing and started go karting at the age of ten, it was all about Formula One and, and finding a way to get over to Europe. And so naturally, um, you know, when people ask, "Oh, what's why why Formula One and why not IndyCar?" and it's well, because it's what I wanted to do since I was a kid. And ovals are something that I have no idea about. Um, you know, a lot of guys that work on the the Road to Indy program, they grow up racing on ovals in the kind of lower categories and they have more of an understanding of what oval racing is about. For me, I never saw an oval until my uh, third IndyCar race in Phoenix. Yeah, but uh, first season in IndyCar wasn't too bad though, was it? I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. going to Indianapolis 500 then, For sure. uh, as a rookie and winning, I mean. Yeah, I think it surprised um, everyone as much as it surprised me and the team. I mean, we went into it obviously just trying to get through the 500 mile race. Um, we we didn't have really any expectations. Andretti Autosport always puts out fast cars at Indianapolis, so we were fairly competitive for a rookie. Qualifying um, 11th, you know, was was an accomplishment, and we were pretty happy about that. But um, we didn't go into the race with any expectation to win, and quite honestly, we didn't really have the pace. Um, all day to win the race, but um, I was pretty fortunate to have some things go my well, go against me, and then actually come around and go my way. And um, my my strategist and car owner at the 
time, Brian Herta came up with a pretty bold uh, plan to, to try and skip a pit stop that everyone else was going to do, and it became a huge fuel mileage race, and uh, we were able to, to squeak by, and um, we won as I coasted across the finish line out of gas. So it was uh, pretty wild. Was that your first time at, at the Indianapolis Motorsport? It was my first time for the 500. I'd been at the, the facility before when I raced in Formula BMW, but I didn't even realize really there was an oval. Like you're there for the Grand Prix, you're there for the F1 race, you go the opposite direction. Like there was no concept of where I was. Um, because again, Indianapolis didn't initially, as a kid, have that um, special feeling. Uh, just because, again, I didn't come from a family that, that really watched TV. So I did my first trip there this year. And, okay. Uh, when you walk in there, it is the most amazing for sure sight you've ever seen. Oh, and that grandstand yes, and yeah. the, the whole thing. And uh, I, every time I go in there now, whether it's for a PR thing or practice day or whatever, like you can't help but be in awe <coughs> of when you drive under the tunnel and you come out and you realize the magnitude of, of the racetrack you're at. It's uh, pretty exceptional, and I think it's only rivaled by by somewhere like like here in Bathurst. Mm. But we don't get the crowd doing it. 320,000 people have got to try to get out of the place. I don't think any sporting event gets the, the crowd that we do. It's pretty pretty amazing that we can say it's the, the largest single-day sporting event in the world. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's funny when they do the kind of um, pre-race uh, kind of information on, on the broadcast about it, what you can actually fit inside the Indianapolis Motor Speedway is it's phenomenal. It's, it is astounding. Yeah. Astounding place. I'm going back, by the way. Great. Next thought, year? I thought you were, yeah, we'll go next year. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Going to try and do a book on it. But, uh, okay. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, this year, though, I mean, I thought you were going to sneak a win out of it. And, uh... So, yeah, for a period of time, so did I. I mean, we uh, we had a quick car all month. Um, you know, we, we had some things happen in qualifying. We were really confident with our race car. And, uh, yeah, kind of at the halfway point, we started to move forward and, and were able to get to the lead of the race pretty easily. And um, from there, it was kind of just playing the game and, and trying to lead when you want to and, and save fuel uh, when you need to and all of that. And um, coming down to the end, you know, we we start we took the restart from the lead with, with about 15 to go, and I knew it was going to be a big fight with with Simon. You know, he was on pole. He had re- he had led the majority of the race, um, and just quite frankly, like he was he was the better car, um, and he. He won despite uh, our best efforts to, to take it away from him, but you know he led more than half the race. Um, as I said, he was on pole. He he was uh, the 22 car was definitely the, the one to beat that day, and uh, we just didn't have enough form at the end. So when you um, I mean you, you made it to Formula One and, and did some races there with yep. uh, with Mauricio, I think it was um, yep. down the back of the grid. I mean, did, did it feel kind of empty when you when that was over and it was in because did it feel at the time like it was a uh, you know, I just didn't get there. And... Um, yes and no, and I'll, I'll explain why. So I uh, I did my five races at the end of 15 with Manor um, and had a really good year in GP2, finished second in the championship, and I signed deal, a signed contract with, with Manor for the following year. Um, there was going to be a, a big uptick in performance with our new support from Mercedes-Benz, and, and everything was, was moving in a really positive direction. And I was um, actually in the workshop getting my final like seat fits made and we were leaving to go testing in like 10 days or whatever. And it's when I got told that I wasn't gonna be racing. Um, that they were like, yeah, you don't have a contract. You have a contract, but it doesn't really matter. 
um, you're not driving the car. So <laughs> when you kind of get, when you spend your entire off season preparing for something and then it gets taken away from you in that way and you end up racing something else, the initial kind of thing is, well, this isn't what I wanted to do, right? But at the same time, when I got to my first race in IndyCar in St. Pete, from the onset, I realized how cool it was. And it was the worst race weekend in terms of performance that I've ever had in my career. Like, we went a lap down on just pace. Like, nothing went wrong. We were just so slow, we were laps down. But I came out of it thinking, that was awesome. Like, I enjoyed myself. And that was the first time I had enjoyed myself behind the wheel of a race car in quite, quite a long time. And so a lot of people still carried the perception that I wasn't interested in being there, but I think internally at the team and um, everything that I was doing outside of the race car in terms of trying to learn and adapt and, and be better was, was um, to, to try and make a career in IndyCar and to have the best rookie season that I could. Obviously, my results were then much more in the limelight and things I were saying were much more paid attention to after we won the 500. Um, but yeah, I think there was some misconceived perceptions of me for sure for the first half of the year, but I think as time went on, people realized that, that I enjoyed the series and, and wanted to be there. So, so when you left Formula One, had you made the decision you were never going back? That was it? You, you'd switched your career to... I hadn't three? quite. Uh, it's not as cut and dry as that because my deal with uh, with Andretti was, was fairly last minute. Um, they had only really run three cars um, up until 2016, and then there was an opportunity with, with Brian Hurd Autosport to add a fourth car. And so for them and for me, it was a one-year deal. Um, and there wasn't really a lot of partners with the car at the beginning of the year. And we were able to kind of make it work as a last-minute program, but um, at the same time, I was being offered a, a kind of a reserve driver role at Manor because they felt, I guess it was more of a pity, guilty, a pity role, <laughs> right? Um, to have, uh, and so I kept that because I wanted to still keep one foot in the door, and I didn't want to just completely abandon everything that I had worked for for the past nine nine years, twelve at that point. It was probably fifteen years of trying to get to Formula One. And so there was there was that kind of transition period in 2016 where I was kind of going, I was commuting back and forth and doing some of the, the races overseas and then um, trying to make both work. But once I won the 500 and Napa Auto Parts came on board as more of a, uh, a bigger program and, and a bigger deal, it became clear that the focus needed to be on finding a way to return to the series in 2017 and to, um, kind of reestablish my career path in, in the States. So um, initially, yes, I was kind of doing both, but probably by July of 16, all of the focus and attention was on IndyCar. Mm. Well, the 500 win would clearly yes. push yeah. the For sure, wouldn't it? I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, change it at all. Yep. Yeah. Um, any regrets then now? I mean, uh, Zero. You know? I would not go back. Yeah. Yeah, I have no interest. Mm. So. It, it seems like Americans... Um, suffer the same thing as Australians in terms of getting into Formula One, and uh, yes. probably for different reasons. I mean, American motorsports is vast; right. it's huge, whereas Australian motorsports not so big. Sure. But we still got a difference of distance and a difference of yes. philosophy. I think, in a sense, that makes it hard. I mean, do you feel that? I think it's it, it's uh, you nailed it with the difference of philosophy. I don't think distance really matters, other than the just logistical cost that goes along mm. with trying to race in Europe. If you're from Australia and your family's from here and everything, it's it's difficult from that standpoint. But Formula One is such a European-centric sport 
and in their minds, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a very, the, the philosophy, I don't even call it philosophy, I just call it arrogance, that Europeans are the only people that are capable of racing in Formula One, everyone else is irrelevant type of thing, and it's not true, right? But because it's so much easier for a European kid in karting to make the transition to Formula One, it's a numbers game against us, right? It's very hard to get enough of a sample size of Australians or Americans to get their families committed to getting them over to Europe at a young age, to get them moving through the ranks and proving themselves through the European ladder system. Because there's nothing that you can do in America that will make a Formula One team want to hire you. And likewise, I doubt there's much you can do in Australia to make a Formula One want to hire you. Less, exactly. So you have to get over there at a young age. And because that's very difficult for most families, you have a handful every couple of years that go over to Europe and try and make it, and they don't. And it just fuels the fire for the Formula One teams and that European arrogance that, oh, well, they can't make it. I was like, well, if we had 200 Americans and Australians against your 200 Europeans, we'd probably have a better shot at it. But when it's like three of us versus 300, that's why it's such a big Which we gang up on them, too. Exactly. <laughs> the um, Haas team, do you think that can change the way it works? Or, I mean, no. I mean, they came in and look good. They, they do, not, they do not run it as an American team in any way, shape, or form. Um, I mean, yeah, I, no, absolutely not. So the future for you, I mean, um, obviously IndyCar is it, but you've been doing a few sports car races, you're obviously here doing a supercar race, I mean, yeah, so is it just about fun from here? I, I don't think fun's the right word, I think it's IndyCar, I'm, I'm in a fortunate position that uh, I drive for, for a team owner who's a race car driver, so he gets the desire to do these other things, right? He uh, he understands that it's hard to sit idle through a six-month off-season, um, so he's a, someone that allows drivers to go kind of venture off and do things as long as it's not like a conflict of interest right so um for for him to to kind of for michael to open the opportunity for me to do this was obviously pretty easy for him considering he's a co-owner of the team and um this was something that i was kind of poking him on ever since he announced it i guess in 2018 <laughs> that he was going to be part of a v8 supercar team so uh, when it came together for this to happen this year um it was it was fantastic and then on top of that, my relationship with Honda in the States is, is really strong. So that allows me to do the Acura sports car program with, with Team Penske and then also race. That's like racing for the enemy, isn't it? Yes and no. <laughs> um, it's interesting because like it's, it's a Team Penske organization, but it's still very much run by Honda and Acura personnel. Yeah. Um, so if anything, it's, I feel like it's more of a conflict of interest for Honda than it is for me. <laughs> but having said that, yeah, they have... Honda opened the door for me to do um, the Baja 1000 uh, last year in their Honda Ridgeline, so it's been cool to, to be able to keep the, the calendar full for sure. So it's nice having that shorter IndyCar season, but it's very compact season yeah, yeah, compared yeah. to when I mean, we start March, finish December. I would prefer the IndyCar season to be longer, to be yeah. honest, but you know, it, it gives me the opportunity at the moment to, to fill my time doing other things, which is great. Yeah. And so we, we're just going to keep on going. You obviously clearly want another Indy 500 win, yep. but um, you want a championship, wouldn't you? Yeah, at this point, if, if someone asks, like, what do you want more, it, it's, a, it's a very difficult question. Um, but because you have one without the other, right, you want a championship the most, I think. So, um, but before you can have a championship, the month of May is first. So right now my focus is on the month of May and, and trying to, to get number two um, next year. 
but if that doesn't happen, then immediately the, the Monday after the 500, you're focused on the championship and trying to make that happen. Yep. And immediately after that last race, you're thinking about this, aren't you? Not so much. <laughs> I was kind of licking my wounds a little bit this year. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a tough end to the season for us. I think, you know, we, we kind of just weren't good enough the second half of the year. For, for one reason or another that we're, we're still kind of analyzing. But, um, yeah, it was, it was not the way we wanted to come to Bathurst. Uh, we wanted to come here as an IndyCar champion, but it uh, wasn't meant to be. Mm. All right, well, thanks for giving us some time. And for sure. Hopefully I'll catch up with you in the month of May. Yeah, Thank you for a longer chat. Yeah, thanks a lot.